Before we jump into the sermon this morning, I wanted to take just a moment to express my appreciation for the warm welcome to the Campbell Church. The cards, the gift cards, the videos, the cleaning supplies for my apartment have been absolutely amazing. And I am thrilled to live in this area, to be a part of this amazing church staff, and to be a part of this church family. I'm so excited to see all the different ways that God will continue to work in us and through us in the years to come. This morning, we're kicking off a new sermon series entitled All Out, based on the text that I shared with you several weeks ago. You remember that sermon, right? Probably not, so let me quickly refresh your memory. In that sermon, I shared the observation that faith in Jesus, who he is, his victory over sin and death, is all that is necessary to be right with God. But having been saved, we're now called to participate in his divine nature. That does not mean that we are divine as he is, but simply that we are called to reflect his divine image with greater clarity. As we do this with greater consistency, our lives have far greater reach and impact on the world in ways that truly matter. That's exciting, but also a little unnerving at first glance. Seriously, what are the odds of an ordinary dude like me behaving like Jesus? Well, if this is left totally up to me, the odds are not good. How bad are they? Let me illustrate it this way. The odds of the president ever admitting that he has made a mistake or the speaker of the house ever saying something nice about the president are probably greater than me actually behaving like Jesus on my own. So here's the good news. The good news is we are not left on our own to pull this off. We are reminded of this by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4. Peter shares these words. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The odds of us becoming like Jesus are actually extraordinarily high because God, who worked to save us, continues to work through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us godly. And not only that, but God's promises for us are like a magnet that pulls us in the direction of godliness. We have truly been given everything that we need. You say, if that's true, then, then why don't I look like Jesus far more consistently? Well, please keep this in mind. This is not a one-time event. This is a process. We are made pure and clothed with Christ in baptism, a one-time event, but the practical reality of living like Jesus day in and day out is a lifelong up and down process. This process, however, is much more likely to go up and to the right if we add to our faith. Add what? Well, Peter mentioned several different qualities in verse five through seven of 2 Peter chapter 1. I really believe it's important for us to begin right here with this text. For us as individuals and as a congregation to have a great impact upon the world, to be productive and effective as Peter points out. So this morning we're gonna begin with the first quality that he mentions. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse five. He writes, for this very reason, make every effort or go all out to add to your faith goodness. What exactly does Peter have in mind here? Well, the word that he uses in the original language that is translated goodness actually refers to moral excellence. In other words, we must go all out to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. 
Now, morality was not, was not something that many in Peter's original audience were excelling at. Even though they had come to faith in Jesus Christ, they had gone back to living a fairly decadent lifestyle. Why is that? They had been convinced by a group of false teachers that doing what feels good was the ultimate definition of a gloriously free life. It's the same message that's being promoted today. Hopefully not in the church, but most definitely in culture. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, do whatever makes you happy and feels good. You are free to be you. That's the message that we're being sold 24-7. Now, it's not typically said that directly, but oftentimes it plays like white noise in the background of Instagram images, or the plot lines of popular TV shows and movies, and the thesis of best-selling books, and the lyrics of some of our favorite music. And like white noise, far too many of us have been lulled to sleep. Instead of going all out to identify and deal with sin in our life, Many of us have decided that somehow meeting the bar set by society as to how they define what it means to be a good person is good enough. And how does society define a good person? Well, basically, it's this. Don't be a jerk. Be nice to your family. Be a good steward of Mother Nature. Don't judge other people. That may be a good start, but it is a far cry from doing what is right and not wrong. So to these people of faith who had been convinced by false teachers to live for their desires, Peter informed them what had been billed as freedom was not really freedom at all. He goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 and 19, for they, speaking of false teachers, mouth empty boastful words. By appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of deprivation. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Here's the thing about our sinful desires. They always take more than they give. Now in the moment, our sinful desires will act like our best friend. They'll try to convince us that they have our best interest at heart. But what you eventually discover somewhere down the road is that's just not true. That it always robs us of something. That sinful desire makes oppressive slave masters. It will rob you of your peace, wreck your self-esteem, inflict harm on others, and create distance in our relationship with God. And if a person continues to participate in sin rather than address sin, Eventually, a person can come to a place in which he or she is incapable of responding to the offer of true freedom that is in Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to emphasize this in verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Those words should serve like a blaring alarm clock that wakes anyone up who has been lulled to sleep by the white noise of culture that says that you can be a follower of Jesus and continue to participate in what God defines as evil or wrong or sin. You say, what about grace? Aren't we saved by grace? Yes, we are. And as Dan Sisson did a great job of reminding the Bible class of two weeks ago or last week, grace covers sin but it is not a license to sin. Grace, when properly understood, it empowers one to pursue a life of moral excellence. 
This is what Paul reminded Peter or Titus of, who was ministering among a people who continued to participate in those things that felt good but were sinful, at the same time claiming that they knew God. He writes these words in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. He goes on to write in chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So what does it look like to go all out to add goodness to our faith? Well, a person who is serious about excelling morally will regularly examine his or her life. David, a man after God's own heart, he models this for us in Psalm chapter 139 and verse 23 and 24. Listen to his prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There are several different means that God uses to answer this prayer. One is scripture. As James reminds us, scripture is like a mirror. Now just to be clear, it's not like a funhouse mirror. Too often we are prone to treat scripture this way, or at least I am. I become convicted by scripture, but then I brush it off. I try to tell myself it's giving me a distorted image of who I really am. The truth is, scripture does not distort. Scripture reveals who we are down to the core of our being. This is the point that the Hebrew writer makes in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. It's hard to be exposed, but there's no way to excel morally if you're not willing to look at your strengths and weaknesses. And God not only uses Scripture to expose us, but also to show us how to do what is right. Scripture reminds us, or it teaches us, how to be patient in trying circumstances how to have honest conversations, how to use our money generously, how to be fair and just towards all people. God not only uses scripture, but he also uses people. God used Nathan to help David face his sin of adultery and murder. He used Paul to help Peter face his sin of racist behavior. He helped Elizabeth come to understand, or he used Elizabeth to help Mary come to understand the unique role in history that she had been called to play. And God continues to use people today. He sends certain people into our lives at certain times to encourage us to continue to do what is good. People who come into our life who say things like this, I I just appreciate so much the way that you encourage other people. I'm moved by your spirit of humility. Your spirit of Self-sacrifice is making a huge impact on so many others' lives. And we're reminded in those moments that this is what it looks like to live a good life. Of course, God also sends people into our lives to help us identify weakness or sin in our life. Are those conversations easy? No. 
natural tendency is to want to deny or justify or, or to blame other people. But if we'll take just a moment to give honest consideration to those conversations, they have the potential to put us on a path towards tremendous spiritual growth. Now, does this mean that I have to accept the feedback that I receive from any and every person? Definitely not. There are some people who simply project their stuff onto us. And other people, they don't have a complete picture of really what's going on in our life. And sadly enough, there are some people who simply try to hurt us or manipulate us. And so we have to be very discerning about who we listen to. But I would say those individuals who have proven themselves over the long haul to have your best interest at heart, they should be given the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I would argue that the more that you feel that you need to push back against those types of individuals, the greater the likelihood that they're touching on an area of your life that uh, you don't want to address, that you're afraid to address, but you need to address to live a life of moral excellence. And so God uses scripture and God uses people, but he also uses our own personal effort. Oftentimes you'll hear this said about a Hall of Fame athlete. He or she was a game tape junkie. What exactly does that mean? That means that this person put in hours upon hours looking at game tape so that they could identify ways that they could improve. Now, if we go, are going to excel morally, we're going to excel at doing right and avoiding what is wrong, we must have this same type of commitment. What exactly does that look like? Well, here's a suggestion. Take 15 minutes at the end of the day just to review how your day went, how you lived your life. It begins with asking questions like this. Was I honest with all of my dealings and all of my dealings? Did I use my words to bring life? Did I operate with a spirit of humility? Did I capitalize on all the opportunities that I had to do good? Did I avoid troublesome, sinful areas? And if not, why not? It looks like this, taking time once a quarter or maybe once a year to go through what is called in the 12-step world as a searching and fearless moral inventory. This is an in-depth look at our life, our associations, our investment in other people, our sense of honesty, our self-integrity, our physical well-being. It's really what Jeff and Lauren led us through just a couple of weeks ago with the prayer and fasting guide. As we read scripture, then they had us look at questions to help us really analyze what's going on in our life. This is a tiresome, tedious process. It can be scary and painful at times. But it is absolutely necessary for us to be honest with ourselves if we're going to live a, a moral life of excellence. And so what exactly does it look like when God reveals to us through Scripture, through people, through our own personal effort, to do good? What does it look like for us to respond? Well, it looks like this, that we are obedient. When God reveals to us to be in a conversation with a person who sees the world differently than we do, we listen to that person like we're listening to our best friend. When God impresses upon us that we need to be patient with our kids who really aren't responding the way that we would like them to, to this whole online learning environment, it means that we step back, we catch our breath, we count to 10 before we address the situation. When God says to us, hey, I, I, I'm serious about obeying the laws of the land, 
What's that mean for us? It means that we get serious about filling out our taxes correctly or we learn to set our cruise control at the proper speed limit. When God impresses upon us that we need to speak the truth to our our wife about her new COVID haircut, buzz cut, well, in that case, I'd ask you to step back and make sure that's really coming from God because I don't know if he wants you to get in that much trouble. Oh, in all seriousness, sometimes it's not easy. It doesn't always come without a a cost to do what is right. But doing what is right is always the right thing to do. And what God reveals to us through scripture and other people and through our own personal effort, weakness or sin in our life, take radical action. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is clearly using hyperbole here, but he is making the point that if we're going to live a life of moral excellence, if we're going to avoid sin, then sometimes it requires making difficult, painful decisions. That may look like ending a relationship or leaving a lucrative career. It may be avoiding certain situations or environments. It may be flushing a substance. I I think about a good friend of mine who called me a couple of years ago during the Christmas holidays. He and his wife had traveled uh, to another state to visit family. He was coming back a couple of days early in advance. So when he called, he said, Sean, I've got got a favor to ask of you. And I said, sure. And what is it? He said, "I, I need you to pick me up at Midway Airport. I said, that's not a problem. I'd be happy to. He said, but here's the real favor. I really need you to go with me to my place and help me clean out all of my drug paraphernalia. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. I have to admit to you that evening when I drove away from his place with two hefty bags full of drug paraphernalia, that I was a little bit nervous. But at the same time, I was so incredibly proud of my friend for taking that radical action. I was also very relieved that I found a good dumpster and I did not get pulled over by a police officer in a seedy part of Chicago. Listen, really taking radical action, it's not just behavior modification. It's also addressing the deep hurts and disappointments in our life. You say, why is that so important? Let's go back to my friend for just a moment. There's a good chance that he was going to be able to to move ahead, not behave the same way, getting involved in that type of lifestyle by getting rid of all his weed and other things out of his place. But I'm not sure that would have lasted for long if he didn't take the time to address those hurts and disappointments in his life. He's trying to soothe through getting high. We all have those hurts and disappointments. And we don't all soothe those hurts and disappointments in the same way. Some of us get high, others of us go shopping. Some of us excessively exercise, some of us are workaholics. But we all try to soothe in different ways that are not necessarily the best ways. We need to dig in, we need to do some deep soul work. That's hard work and oftentimes it really requires the involvement of another person who is very spiritually mature. Sometimes it requires the involvement of a trained therapist who's hopefully spiritually minded as well. But it's important work to do. We must be emotionally whole. And if you're at a place in your life this morning where you're ready to deal with that type of hurt in your life, 
but you're not exactly sure what step to take next, I want to encourage you to reach out to someone this week. Give me a call. I'd love to have a conversation with you, sit down and have a cup of coffee and just think about what might be the next step. Or maybe call another minister on staff or one of our shepherds. Know this, that we're on the same team, that we want to support you, that we want to pray with you, that we want to encourage you and help you figure out what God's calling you to do next. Listen for just a moment to a blog post I read recently that really touches on the healing power of doing this deep soul work. A woman by the name of Brittany shared these words. Some people were taught how to deal with difficulties healthily by addressing them, processing them, and learning from them. However, the vast majority were not taught those valuable lessons. Rather than healing from the heartbreak, you might have been taught to avoid it. Instead of managing your stress, you might run from it. We all go through things in life, but until we learn to process life's difficulties, we will find ourselves running from them. I hate stress. I always have and always will. I used to turn to drugs and alcohol to numb out. I didn't know why I always wanted to drink an entire bottle of wine until I could forget about whatever it was that was stressing me out, until I had a conversation with God. He showed me that there was a place of pain in me that I needed to heal. I ran from stress because as a child, our household was very stressful. There was a lot of anger, yelling, and cursing. There was no grace, no love, no mercy. I looked forward to going to school each day because I hated being home. Our home was a place of uncertainty. When things were calm, I anxiously awaited the next outburst. I was never at peace when I was at home. So as an adult, when moments of high stress came into my life, I wanted to run from them. God forbid me to feel that stress that once tormented me as a child. However, God does not forbid moments of stress, but he does promise us rest if we seek him. Immense pressure was a trigger that made me run to drugs and alcohol to avoid the feeling of it. God began to show me that in those moments of stress, he was preparing me for something much more significant. And instead of running from it, I needed to run to him. He is the giver of peace. He is the healer. He is our great counselor. Drugs and alcohol could offer me nothing in comparison to what God could give me. Drugs and alcohol can provide me temporary relief as they mask the pain I am running from, whereas God can heal the pain so that I never have to run from it again. Listen, to truly excel morally, one must be whole. This is not easy, but it's possible not because we are smart and not because therapists are good, but because we have been given everything that we need, the power and the promises of God. Please know that this is a praying congregation. And if there's something that we can be praying about for you this week, whether it relates to this sermon or something else going on in your life, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Please send in a prayer request right now online. Or if you're watching this later, feel free to email that prayer request to us. And please know that we'll be praying for you this week. May God bless you with a wonderful week.